Welcome to the Real Education Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Bowles, and on this show, I interview remarkable people who think way outside the box in education. To listen to more episodes, learn more about my guests, or become a patron of this ad and sponsor-free show, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. You can also email me at yours truly at blakebowles.com. Now, on to the show. My guest today is Lucas Isakowitz, a 25-year-old grown unschooler, college graduate, and part-time Alaskan fisherman. Lucas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Blake. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Tell us who you are, how old you are, and what you are up to right now. Okay, so I'm uh, 24 years old, and I was born in New York City and raised in Philadelphia. My parents are Argentinian, and... uh, they decided, I have two older siblings, and they decided when my sister was of age to start going to elementary school, they decided that um, sort of because of a series of events that she wasn't really ready, and in that year that they were supposed to send her, uh, they decided to homeschool her for a year, and that took off. And ever since then, me and my brother and sister were homeschooled all the way through um, for most of my elementary, middle, and uh, high school education. And uh, and right now, I'm... Uh, sitting in Seattle, and I'm on my way to go up to Alaska for the 2015 summer salmon fishing season. And I got to get a technicality out here. You told me before we started the interview that you're 25, but now you introduce yourself as 24, Lucas. What's going on here? Oh, wow. I actually didn't realize that I said I was 25. I'm I'm 24. (laughs) Let me clarify that. Absolutely 24. (laughs) Great. Um, And is this your first time going up to Alaska? No, I went up uh, right after I graduated from university in the summer of 2013. To do? To fish on a salmon saner, so a salmon fishing boat. Is this one of those super dangerous Alaskan fishing jobs where you make a ton of money but you might lose an arm? Uh, So I think that most Alaskan fishing jobs are as dangerous as working on a construction site, which means that it's quite dangerous, you know, if... Uh, there's accidents that happen everywhere, but as long as everyone is paying attention and working well, there shouldn't be any malfunctions and no one should be ripping out any arms. <laughs> Good principle for life. No one should be ripping out any arms. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to talk about your education. You had a neat combination of both homeschooling, unschooling, and then more formal high school and uh, you went to a competitive college, Penn, and you did some work. Uh, you've bounced in between working in Alaska and then also having a, a more traditional career in New York City, if I'm correct. Yes, that's correct. So I'm really interested in hearing uh, your perspectives, having dipped your your toes in each of these worlds for a significant amount of time. Um, so why don't we go back to the, the beginning? You're from Argentina, but you your family moved to New York. And uh, what was your what was your mom or your 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 parents' reason for choosing to homeschool you when you were young? Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually born in New York City. My parents moved to the United States 30 years ago. And I have a sister who's a couple of years older than me. And when it was time for her to go to elementary school, my mom took her the first day and she dropped her off. And I think like any mother, she felt a little bit strange leaving her daughter in the care of someone else, but that was okay. And when she went back to pick her up, at maybe like 1 or 2 p.m., 
she saw that there was all, like all the toys and and sort of the playhouse had a red rope, a line around it. And my mother asked the teacher, why, why is that rope there? And the teacher said, well, you know, it's not time for them to play right now. Now is uh, like reading time or this time or that time. And my mom saw that the kids really did want to go and play in this house. And my mom had a, a small conversation with the teacher that was revolving around the fact that, oh, don't you think that the kids should play if they want to play? And after that interaction, my mom decided that she was going to keep my sister, Marina, um, out of school for another year. And After day one? After day one, yeah. She only wow. lasted one day. And when she pulled her out, um, my mom started doing a little bit of research and started reading about homeschooling and unschooling and became pretty interested um, and met some other parents in New York City who were doing homeschooling or unschooling. And... That year, my mom took my sister to a bunch of play groups, and when next year rolled around, she just decided to not enroll Marina in school again, and that just took off into evolving into a whole unschooling family uh, dynamic, which worked out really, really well for us. And you're using the word unschooling instead of homeschooling. Uh, Can you define what that looked like for your family? Sure. So for us and for my mother and father... um, Unschooling was letting the three of us, me, my brother, and sister, uh, spend our days really however we wanted. Um, my parents would wake up in the morning. My mom was lucky enough to be to, to be able to stay with us all day, and she would sort of present us with a number of options. Do you want to go and play outside? Do you want to read a book? Do you want to do some mathematics? Do you want to go skateboard? Do you want to go to a museum? It was really, really open-ended. Um, and... That to us was unschooling. There was never a set schedule. There wasn't a set number of things that we needed to learn by the end of the year. It was uh, nurturing the natural curiosity of, 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 of us that led us to educate ourselves. So your sister was the guinea pig. Yes. And then a few years later, you got just brought into the homeschooling, unschooling fold uh, without question. They never thought about sending you to school. Yes, exactly. And what did you end up doing for most of your childhood? And tell me again, <laughs> how long were you unschooled until you decided to make a change? Yeah, until I was 14. Okay. So most of your childhood? Most of my childhood was spent running around outside playing soccer and having my mother read Harry Potter to me and going to museums and going to the grocery store and skateboarding. Um, there was, up until I reached maybe 12 or 11, there was very little sitting down with a textbook in front of you um, and learning. And as a result, I actually didn't learn to read until I was 11. Um, and I remember my mother talking to some of my friend's parents who were not homeschoolers, and they expressed a lot of concern about the fact that I wasn't reading yet. And my mom was like, no, no, listen. When, when Lucas is ready, he'll learn. And until then, I'm just reading to him and he's enjoying it. And he's picking up a lot of, uh, he's picking up a lot of knowledge, even though he's not reading. And when I turned 11 or 12, I, I decided that it was time for me to start to learn to read. And it, in a span of maybe three to four months, I had uh, learned to read Harry Potter. I've heard this story about Harry Potter uh, being the, the mechanism for unschoolers learning to read a number of times. <laughs> I, I wonder how many there are out there who That's have done that. That's very funny. <laughs> and when you say you 
you taught yourself to read or you learned to read over this span of a few months? Uh, is it really that simple? Did you, at age 11, just, did you start looking at these Harry Potter books that were on the shelf and think, this is something I want to do for myself and, and literally just pick them up and start turning the pages? How, how much help did you get? So I, I definitely had help. My mom would sit down and, and read to me. And then when I expressed a desire to actually want to learn, she would sit down and help me read. Um, and it wasn't as though I was, I went from zero to a hundred in a matter of days. It was tough at the beginning, but I remember feeling a, a really strong desire to want to learn to read. I remember walking down the street and being like, man, I wish I could read the signs that are all around me. I'm really, really limited. And when it got to that point, when I realized that I was missing out on a lot of the world, I told my mom that, and then we would sit down and do reading lessons every day. So you ended up asking for help, sort of asking for structure in the form of, of lessons and teaching because you saw this, this pressing relevant need in your life to understand stuff and to understand what Hermione is going to do next. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And I, and I actually, it was great because I started reading Harry Potter books that I had um, heard numerous times over because I also had the audio books. So it was sort of reading a very, very familiar story. So that helped me learn as well. Yeah, that seems like a nice baby step. You sort of know what's going to come next. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Was that difficult for you socially uh, as a 9 or 10 or 11-year-old to not be able to read when I assume virtually all of um, your friends or people who you met uh, were able to do it at that point? Mm. Yeah, maybe to a small degree. I do remember feeling a little bit embarrassed by not being able to read. And I think that was one of the reasons why I actually wanted to read. Aside from wanting to know what was going on in the world and be able to read signs, uh, I do remember feeling a little bit embarrassed that I could not read. And so then I asked my mother and, and we started learning. Mm -hmm. All right. What happened at age 14? What was the shift? So my brother and sister, who are two and four years older than me, decided that uh, that they were going to take classes at community college and they were sort of, they, they had branched out and become a lot more independent. So it was just me alone in the house pretty much. Uh, and I had decided, or well, I had thought for a long time that it would be really interesting to go and check out what regular school was like. I played on a soccer team and I had friends from the neighborhood who would constantly talk about exams and homework and the drama of what uh like freshman year of high school was and it really intrigued me so i think it was the combination of a curiosity of what the other side of education looked like and the understanding that my brother and sister were branching out taking classic community college my sister was about to leave for college uh so i thought that the time was right to check it out how did your mom, who is almost a, a two-decade-long veteran of unschooling at this point, uh, how did she respond to your desire to, to go back to school? She responded really well. She was extremely encouraging and said, you know, Lucas, if that's what you want to try, I really, I, th I think it's a great idea. And she also said, I remember she said, if you try it out and it really doesn't work out for you, then we, you can always come back. So she's pretty much the perfect unschooling mom is what you're saying. Oh, Your yeah. mom is perfect. My mom was absolutely perfect. And <laughs> and when, the thing is, when I went back to school, um, my brother was old enough that 
she wasn't really staying home with him anymore. So she actually went back to school and got her master's at the same time that I went to uh, get my get, go, go to regular high school. So yeah, the whole family went back to school. The whole family went back to school. Yeah, it's an exodus. <laughs> yes. So what was that like for you? What was having you know you learned to read three three years prior to that? You it sounds like well I'm sorry. Let's back up a step. Sure. How social was your life as an unschooler uh, growing up through age 14? Yeah. Was it largely you and your family or did, did you have groups? So I think that's a really important question. I had, I, I my mom made a really big effort to create a dynamic uh, social group for us. So we had friends from the neighborhood. I played on a soccer team and then my family attended an alternative learning center. It was, it's called Upatina's. It recently closed. Um, and this was 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia and we would drive there uh, once or twice a week, and it was a place where other homeschoolers or unschoolers or just people that advocated for an alternative education would go, and uh, we would take classes that we maybe couldn't take at home with our parents, and we would also socialize. So I had a pretty large social network before going to high school. So you had moved to Philadelphia at this point, no longer in New York City? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I had moved to Philadelphia when I was seven. Got it. Yes. Okay. So most of your, your young adulthood was spent in Philadelphia. And Apatinas was a place where it sounds like it's a, it's a free school model where you can go and you can sign up for classes, but you can also not sign up for classes and just uh, hang out and meet people. Is, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, as you and I both know, Apatinas no longer exists. It, it folded, I think, last year, 2014, um, due to low, low enrollment and corresponding lack of funds. So that's, that's a big bummer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a really great place. It gave me uh, an amazing amount of uh, the friends that I made there and the encouragement to be an individual participating in a community were unparalleled. It was really beautiful. So would your unschooling experience have been much different and perhaps much less rich if you hadn't had this this local community and resource center to be part of? Uh, it's very possible, but I don't know what the alternative would have been. Because when I was living in New York up until I was seven, there was a really large homeschooling community in New York City. I believe they're still around. They're called Nikea or Nichea. Yeah, they're um, still around. Yeah. And uh, and so it, it wasn't as structured as Apatina's, but... It was a, a group of like-minded individuals that would get together and we would go, go to museums and play sports. So Apatinos is definitely fantastic, but I think that there would have been a viable alternative. Either way, it sounds like your family was pretty serious about connecting with, with other people and with the community. And so that your homeschooling did not look like this you know, kind of artificial stereotype that a lot of people have of of somebody sitting lonely without friends at home, you know, working on stuff at the kitchen table. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so you had that background. You went to high school. Um, what's that? Ninth grade? You went, started at ninth grade or tenth grade? Tenth grade. Tenth grade. Entered uh, a public high school. Yes, yeah, Central High School. Central High School. That what a classic name. Oh yeah. Um, There's a Central and- High School in every city. <laughs> <laughs> you entered as a sophomore. Uh, everyone, I assume, already knows each other. How many people are at this high school? It's about 2,000, 2,500 kids. Yeah, that's the same size as the high school that I went to in, in Bakersfield, California. Huh. Um, and, I, and I'm and i just imagining my, my own social experience back then. How did it – just tell us. 
what what was it like so i uh luckily i played soccer and i was i was pretty good at soccer and before school started in september there was preseason for soccer so i started maybe at the end of july training with the soccer team and that gave me a really really good uh social network to rely on once school started because these kids knew me, they knew I was good at sports and they accepted me very easily. Uh, so that was a really, really great way to get past initial awkwardness. But still, I remember the first couple of days, not the, uh, probably the first couple of weeks and into months of walking through these busy hallways and having a locker and just being a little overwhelmed by how many kids there were and just the interactions that were happening all around me. So it was definitely an adjustment and it took me a couple of months to really get in the groove of things, but playing sports and having this group of, of guys vouch for me really facilitated the process. Was it what you were expecting from the high school experience? Yes, it was exactly what I was expecting. <laughs> TV and movies do a pretty good job. They, they, of... they actually do. They surprisingly do. Yeah. Any other interesting stories from your three years in high school? Did you pretty much just you know do classes, do soccer, and, and live the yeah. high school life? Yeah, so I think that there, the, the, the one interesting thing about where I sort of my transition from unschooling to going to high school was that I was extremely excited by the schoolwork at first. I would go to class and I would sit there and I would diligently listen to the teacher and I would do all the homework, read the textbook, turn in the homework on time, do really well on the tests. Um, and as a, re- as a result, I did really well academically. And, and I really found it exciting to have to turn in assignments. Uh, and then, so I started a sophomore year and probably at the tail end of junior year, so two years after I started, the novelty of it began to wear off. Mm. And I became frustrated with some of the homework that I saw as busy work and the dynamic of the teacher really having a lot uh, more power than the student. Whereas at first it was this kind of exciting game that I had never really played before. It became very frustrating to have to call someone Mr. X instead of their first name and to have to ask to go to the bathroom and to not be able to say, hey, you know, I really don't feel like doing this right now. Could I maybe do it later? Um, All these things about standard normal education, which at first I was really, really excited to try out and to see what it was going to be like, really began to frustrate me at the tail end of uh, junior year of high school. But you decided to stick it out. Yeah, at that point, I decided to stick it out. I had made a lot of friends. Uh, I was doing well. I was excited by the soccer team and I played tennis as well. So even though the academics were starting to frustrate me a little bit, I was uh, I, I had found my place there, and I figured that another year would be uh, I would have a good time, I would learn a lot, and the frustrations would not outweigh the positive things that I was going to get from it. And did that turn out to be true? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, it it did. I I really I really got a lot out of going to Central after having been unschooled for so long. It was good to see the way that a high school functions and the complex social interactions that can be pretty petty and really like dramatic like a movie uh but it it was important for me to be able to navigate these things and have uh not that unschoolers and homeschoolers can't have girlfriends i had a girlfriend before as well but (laughs) but but the dynamic was very different of seeing this person in school every day with your friends as well and 
uh, and it added kind of another layer to it. So, and I, I know you have some other thoughts on uh, what can be gained from being in that that sometimes petty, sometimes you know socially vicious uh, social atmosphere. Um, let, let's come back to those a little bit later, but I want to make sure we don't miss them. Sure. Um, you decided to uh, apply to college. What what was going through your head? What were the pluses and minuses? Or did it even seem like a decision? Did you always know you wanted to do that? I always knew that I wanted to. My brother and sister had both gone off to school, uh, and it really hadn't even crossed my mind to not go to university. And do you feel like that came out of a sense of family expectation? Did it? Uh, did you um, hear stories from your brother and sister that kind of illustrated what the experience was going to be like? Um, what? I'm just curious what um, this, uh, where this this default assumption that you were definitely going to go to college came from. Uh, I grew up with that same assumption, and, and I'm still trying to pick it apart in my own brain. So hmm. I'd love to hear your answer. Yeah, I th- I think that I always assumed that I was going to go to university the same way that I always assumed that I was going to keep learning. This was something that my parents had really instilled in me that even once you graduate from school, from high school, from college, whatever that is, that all of life is learning. And it seemed like the next logical step to continue my education was to go to university. So I think that's where it came from. And then that, and then it was reinforced when my brother and sister both went off to college. Great. Where did you apply? So I applied to... Um, a lot of the Ivy League schools, Harvard and Brown and Yale and Penn. Um, I actually applied early decision to Yale. I visited and, and I found it to be a really wonderful place. It seemed so magical that I really wanted to go there. The campus looks like you're in Hogwarts. And I, guess- I, was, I was about to say, if you're a Harry <laughs> Potter fan, then the Yale campus is just... Oh, yeah. The stunning best place ever. Totally stunning. And, you know, everyone was so excited about the academics there, and it really seemed like a great place to go. And then I applied to a number of smaller liberal arts schools, Swarthmore and Haverford and Wesleyan. Um, those were the schools that I was looking at. Did you have any issue uh, explaining your, your pre-sophomore year education on the application forms? Or was it a non-issue because you... Um, had graduated from a, a, a normal public high school. It, it was actually beneficial for me to talk about because it, add, it added a, an interesting twist to my application. And I had seen my brother and sister apply as homeschoolers. And for them, it was a little bit more complicated because I had to take more S, uh, a, a number of different standardized tests to sort of show their proficiency in different materials. Um, so I had their example to work off of. And then I also had an interesting backstory to talk about in my application. So it helped out. Great. Yeah, you got the, the best of both worlds there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What made you choose Penn, University of Pennsylvania? So actually, I didn't choose Penn. I chose Swarthmore to attend first, which is a, a small liberal arts school about two hours outside of Philadelphia. It has about 2,000 students. Um, and my sister attended Swarthmore, and it's a really intense environment academically but it has a really really great sense of community so i decided that i wanted to go there and after a couple of weeks at swarthmore actually my freshman year i had a strange reaction of being in college i decided that swarthmore was too small of a place for me and i wanted to go somewhere bigger and i realized that i had oh well i thought that i had made the wrong decision so i was actually able to transfer to penn after the first three weeks of college 
and switched to a larger school. That's interesting. I'm sure you've you've analyzed this. What what do you think made you uncomfortable with that small college experience? So I actually think what happened was the same thing that happens to a lot of freshmen as they go off. Uh, I was just shocked to have left my home and to be in a new place, and it was overwhelming. And instead of having the time and patience to tell myself, Lucas, you know, a lot of people go through this, and uh, it's probably not the school. You're just reacting negatively to a really intense experience. Uh, I decided that it was Swarthmore's fault and that Swarthmore was too small and that I wasn't going to get what I really wanted out of school. So Penn was... I'm I'm glad I transferred to Penn because I really had a fantastic experience there. But I also think that I would have had a good experience at Swarthmore if I would have stuck it out. And perhaps you would have reacted that way no matter where you what college you would have gone to first. Uh yes, I think so. And I actually sometimes wonder if uh if my reaction was so intense because I was uh so close to my family and my parents specifically. Um even while I was in high school, I had a really, really intimate uh, relationship with my mother, and which I love, and it was great. But I sometimes wonder if that sort of really gut reaction, that homesickness, came from uh, from the fact that I had been homeschooled for so long and had relied on my mother for so long. Well, that's a good segue into what I wanted to make sure we talked about. Um, what do you feel now, being 24 and having gone through... Um, unschooling high school and college and sometime in the working world also. Um, what do you feel were like the biggest um, things that you took away from being unschooled and, and what were some possible um, drawbacks like what you were just describing, like maybe feeling too close uh, with your family and, and perhaps that contributed to uh, a sense of, um, of anxiety when you left? Sure. So I think one of the, the, most important things that I've taken away from unschooling is that your desire to learn is the best tool that you can have in anything. If you're excited about a subject or a project or a material, you're going to be 10 times better at it than someone else who's being forced to do it. So that's sort of the way that I look at my life now after I've graduated from college. I try to find work or activities that really excite me on a very basic level and I'm going to be better at them. I'm going to be more excited to pursue them than someone who's sort of obligated to do it. And I think that if in my peers that went to like traditional elementary and middle schools, you're you're really taught at an early age that you have to do the tasks that are assigned to you, not choose the tasks that you want to do. So that was I think that's a single most important thing that unschooling has given me. What about possible drawbacks? Hmm. Possible drawbacks. Um, for me or for unschoolers in general? Let's stick with for you and anyone who you, you knew personally, so we don't go into to wild theorizing. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good, uh, good call. I think that one of the drawbacks for me, and maybe it's the flip side of that same coin of doing things that you're excited about, is that for me and for my brother and sister, 
we find it very hard to do tasks that don't excite us on a raw level. So it's a little harder for me to kind of sit down and say, okay, well, you know, this needs to get done. And even if I don't enjoy this economic analysis or this uh, research paper that I have to write, uh, it's important to write it because it serves a larger purpose. Sometimes the the need to satisfy a, uh, a very basic level of excitement takes away from being able to accomplish a larger task. Hmm. What did you learn in high school being in, in that social environment that you feel like you might not have learned if you unschooled all the way through to college? So I think most unschooling and homeschooling environments are very community oriented and everyone will listen to you and hear out your reason for wanting or not wanting to do something. And unfortunately, the world is not like that. Most people are not going to take your opinion into consideration all the time or really give you the time of day to explain yourself. And I think that if I had not gone to, to a large public high school to Central, I wouldn't have understood that until much later. And I think that it's important in navigating the world to be able to tell, you know, when is the appropriate time to tell someone everything that you feel and to share what you really want and when the time is to say, okay, well, you know, this person doesn't care and I'm going to be able to navigate it as, uh, as successfully as possible. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I was going to say that a lot of people who uh, first hear about homeschooling and unschooling, um, that is one of their counter arguments uh, that the world is not um, this nice, safe little haven. And maybe there's some value in going to school and getting trash canned or being part I, of these sort of petty politics because you you will run into that again. You will run into bureaucracy again. Uh, what, what do you think about that argument? I think that it's totally, totally valid. I think that if you're going to, uh, if you're going to pursue what you want in life, a lot of the time you're going to have to deal with large bureaucracy or a lot of other people that don't share your values. And homeschooling is a pretty insular community and people tend to interact with other people that want the same thing. And it's really, really important to be able to know how to deal with people that don't want the same thing or actually want the opposite of you and are going to be aggressive or mean um, or just difficult. So I, I, I totally agree with the argument that, uh, that some level of uh, social violence or social I don't know. Adversity. Oh, I don't know. Adversity, that's a much better way of putting it, uh, is really beneficial. Did you encounter any of that ad- adversity at Upatinas, uh, in, in that sort of free school type community that you found benefited you later on? Or uh, was it still all warm and fuzzy? Well, so Upatinas, we, we would, whenever we were a completely democratic school, so whenever we had an issue that we needed to be to the, an issue that needed to be resolved, we would have a all school meeting and then everyone would get a vote. And um, so there was controversy in the sense that we would talk about things and people would have opposing opinions, but it was also very warm and fuzzy in the sense that we would sit down and talk about things and everyone's opinion mattered from the, the six year old who felt that she wanted to share that, you know, this whole issue of high schoolers going into the woods and, and breaking the trees made her feel really sad to the, uh, the biology teacher explaining on a very basic level that this is really bad for the forest and, and everything that we're doing is really destroying uh, the beauty of the nature of Optinas. 
sorry, that was a little rambling. Did that answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying it was a different form of, of discussion and adversity in group politics. It was more democratic, more managed than the sort of wild, wild west atmosphere of a, a big public high school. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, I think that that whole question is very interesting because in one way, you know, yes, the job of education is to prepare you for the world that exists right now. And in another way, the job of education is to help you figure out what kind of world you want to shape and you want to make exist. And so, you know, saying that, you know, there's social uh, viciousness that you have to deal with. In one way, that's a valid argument. And in another, if you want to create a world that doesn't have all that bureaucracy and viciousness, then um, then perhaps um, you shouldn't be, you know, given this trial by a fire. Mm. I, I see both arguments, and I'm not sure. You know, it's it's a complicated question. It is a complicated question, but I would I would answer it by saying, even if you do want to create a world that lacks this social viciousness, it's going to take some sort of social viciousness to create this to create a world Ooh. like that. Man, we're getting a little Machiavellian yes. here. Well, that's what right. I would, that's what I would say. Um, but that's that's <laughs> just my opinion. Yeah, um, very very interesting. Okay, <laughs> let's um, continue with your story. Uh, what was your experience like at Penn? Was it the the fantastic academic community experience that you were expecting to get out of college? So at first, it was it was really great. Um, the classes are really exciting. Freshman year, everyone is really uh, eager to socialize, and you can take the, the range of academic subjects that you can study is essentially limitless. And it was very, very exciting for the first year or two. Um, and then I, still, I, I got a little lost because I didn't exactly know what I wanted to study. And I found that at being at such a large institution that's pretty competitive and quite pre-professional, I wasn't receiving as much guidance as I think I needed. So I ended up taking classes that I think my time would have been maybe better spent studying something else. Uh, that being said, I did get an amazing education there, and the professors and the students are really, really unique and driven, and it's a very exciting place to go. What did you go in to study, and, and what did you end up graduating with? I went in without a clue of what I wanted to study, and I ended up majoring in American history, which has a lot of merits, and I've learned how to read and write in extremely well. But I think that if I had been in a smaller school with a little bit more guidance, a sort of more of a warm and fuzzy environment, as we were talking earlier, uh, I think that I, I, I would have been able to sit down with a professor or someone who really, really knew me, and we would have talked it through, um, and I would have gotten a little bit more guidance. And do you feel like you would have chosen a different major in that case? Yes, I do. Yes. Like uh, like what, for example? So uh, now that I'm, I'm two years out of college, I'm still quite young, and I, and I don't know what I'm going to pursue later on in life, but I think that I, if I could do uh, pen over again, I would study mathematics or statistics, some sort of technical field that I could then apply instead of uh, having really focused very hard on the humanities. And why is that? Because I found that most of the work that I'm interested in uh, requires a certain degree of technical understanding, which I can absolutely get now that we have these fantastic online courses that can teach you anything. But uh, I, I've been applying to several positions, 
try to work for an international aid uh, organization or consulting firm, and most of them require uh, a certain degree of understanding of statistics and programming languages, which I don't have, unfortunately. Hmm. Yeah. And I, that's another thing I find interesting because part of the narrative of unschooling is that you spend time early on figuring out what you like and what you're interested in and what your passions are. And the assumption becomes, and, and I have propagated this idea myself, mm-hmm. um, that you sort of know what you want at an earlier age. And so you can make like a more informed decision about going to college and what you want to major in. And um, your story illustrates, and, and many other people who I know, um, their stories illustrate that that's, that's not really always true. Self-knowledge is a tricky horse to ride. And it, it's, it's hard to figure out stuff like what I'm, I want to major in, in in college. I mean, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I think so. I think that uh, unschooling can really provide you the mechanism to discover what you want earlier than a lot of traditional education systems. That being said, it's incredibly hard to know what you want to do, to know yourself. And, uh, and for some people, it will work and other people, not that 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 I have no inkling of what I'd like to do or unschooling made it harder for that. Not at all, but it is, a, it's, it's a tricky horse ride. Absolutely. What did you do after you graduated? So after I graduated, I actually went to Alaska to work on a commercial Ooh. salmon fishing boat. All right. Where'd that idea come from? So after I graduated, I decided that I really wanted to take a trip and travel around the world uh, because I was excited to sort of branch out from the standard academics and go off and, you know, have a really rugged adventure where I would learn firsthand what's going on. And that was very exciting, but I needed a lot of money to do that and I didn't have any money. So I thought about things that I could do to make a substantial amount of money in a short amount of time. And fishing was uh, one of those options. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do. What was your term of service for this first uh, gig? It was uh, from May until August. And what, I've never been to Alaska and I've never fished on a commercial boat. Just tell me what that was like. Sure. So there's a bunch of different styles of fishing um, and it depends on what you're actually fishing for. But I was fishing for salmon and we were on a 48 foot boat, a saner which is a specific style of fishing. And there were four of us that lived on the boat for the entire season. And uh, where I was fishing, which is Kodiak, Alaska, the fishing was, uh, the peak season would start in about July. So all through June, you were fishing kind of lightly. And then once the peak season starts, you're waking up at three or four in the morning every day and uh, working the net until probably midnight. So it can be quite exhausting. And I was led to believe that there was a, an incident on the boat you were working on that uh, involved a, a drunken captain. Yeah. Classic. Can you tell us about that? I can. Yes, I can. So I'm not going to mention the captain's name because he was, uh, you know, he was a, he was a, a good fisherman and a, a man who was trying. So I don't want to smear his name, but this, the, this captain, he had a, a drinking problem, which unfortunately a good amount of people that work in fishing tend to uh, hit the bottle, bottle quite heavily. So as the season went on, we started to realize more and more that the captain was getting drunk 
on the job while we were working. And the captain on uh, is in charge of uh, working the big hydraulic blocks that pull the net out of the water. We're talking about uh, a net that's the length of five football five football fields that weighs uh, 20, 30,000 pounds when it's loaded with fish. So very, very heavy stuff that's moving around the boat. And uh, there were a couple of incidents where we kind of, my, myself and the other deckhand would approach uh, the captain to talk to him, to maybe tell him, hey, uh, you know, maybe you should stop drinking <laughs> while we're fishing. And, uh, and he was uh, really, really unhappy about us talking to him, these two kids from Philadelphia. I was there with my good friend from college, these two kids from Philadelphia trying to tell uh, an Alaskan how to run his fishing operation. And so it was quite, uh, quite tense, but we continued fishing because uh, there was money to be made. It was incredibly beautiful. And I was working to, uh, to actually travel around the world. So I had a lot of motivation to stay there and stick it out. Um, but there came one day where the captain was maybe 11 or 12 in the morning and he started to hit the bottle very hard. He would say, I'm going to make myself a cocktail. And the cocktail was, was Jim Bean and Coca-Cola. And so he would just start guzzling these things down. And it was 10 when he started and at noon he was just tanked. And it was very dangerous to be on the boat with him. He was driving around screaming that he wanted to continue fishing. And so myself and the other deckhand, we stepped up to him and said, hey, listen, you know, we have to stop fishing today. You're too drunk. And that quickly devolved into a fist fight, which quickly devolved into the other crew member getting punched in the face, which then led us to hop on uh, the life raft that was on the boat and go oh to, my gosh. to go to town. And that was how that fishing season ended. <laughs> Wow. So your friend got punched in the face, not you. Well, actually, it was not my friend. It was the, th the third crew member got punched in the face, who was quite good friends with the captain. Oh. So it, it no was, one was spared. It was very, very messy. Oh, yeah. It was a very messy end to the season. So you're going back to fish again, I assume, on a different boat. Uh, yes. Even just a few days. Different boat. Yeah. And uh, we're nearing the end of our, our time, uh, I'd, I'd still love to hear, did you take that trip um, around the world after you finished the first season? I, I did. Well, I didn't make it all the way around the world, but I <coughs> made it down to the South Pacific and sailed. I have a friend who has a sailboat down there, so I spent a, a good amount of time sailing around some islands in the South Pacific, and then I went to Australia and then Southeast Asia, and it was really fantastic. Awesome. How yeah. long was your total voyage? Uh, it was about five months. So you were able to travel full-time for five months after working in Alaska for three months? Yeah, exactly. And still have some money left over? Yep. A good amount of money stayed out. Yep. Not a bad deal. Um, and what did you do when you got back from those voyages? Uh, you, you worked in New York City, correct? Exactly, yeah. So I got back maybe in January uh, of 2014. And I started to look for a job, and I landed a job working for a market research firm in New York City, uh, writing industry reports, which is essentially these large-scale Wikipedia-type articles about the U.S. economy. 
And I jumped into a job in an office working in New York City. Did that work out for you? Like this, this office job that mm. oh, it ahead. was, it, it, it was quite frustrating at the beginning coming from, you know, working on a fishing boat and then traveling around. I was really excited to do something more dynamic and more active. And I knew that coming into it, it was going to be difficult for me to sit and work uh, a job uh, a nine to five, essentially every day, but I decided to give it a shot. And I'm really glad that I did, even though I've recently left. I got a lot out of the job as far as learning how to do financial writing and doing uh, more in-depth economic research. Uh, and I think that I that if I had been really, really hesitant to take the job in the first place and waited and waited and waited, I would never have jumped into anything. So even though I know that it wasn't the right thing for me, it was, again, like a very positive experience. But you're leaving it and you're going back to the... The uh, Alaska fishing world is—is is this symbolic of you, you know, deciding uh, against the the office life and deciding to try to again work with your hands and your body and do be more active? It it's a step in that direction. I don't exactly know what I'm going to do when I come back, but I would love to take the experience of my previous trip in Alaska and my time in New York and my fourth my coming trip in Alaska and really bunker down and write something, whether that's some uh, a news article or a long-form journalist piece or some sort of short story or novel about it. Um, but I would really like to take these experiences and turn them into some sort of writing. To close, Lucas, uh, can you tell me what you think are the most important ingredients in, in getting a real education? Um, for you, was it uh, working on the boat? Was it pen? Was it going to high school? Was it unschooling? Is there one thing you can identify that, that really has made the biggest difference in your life? So that's a pretty tricky question, but I'll try to answer it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, that's no, a bombshell. That's okay. I think for me, one of the, the, the most important thing was how, the, how different every aspect of my education has been. And I think it's really important to see different sides of the world and whether um, you're unschooled your entire life or whether you're in a traditional education system your entire life, I think you really miss out on seeing what the other side is like. And I, and even though I've struggled um, sometimes in high school and in college and then in my job at in New York City, uh, I've really gotten a lot out of these things that I wouldn't have gotten if I didn't just decide, hey, you know what? life is short, I might as well try this out for a year or two years and see what happens. So the dynamic nature of education, I think, is really, really important. My guest today has been Lucas Isakowitz. Lucas, thank you for being on the show. Sure, thanks. Thanks a lot. This is the Real Education Podcast. This show is produced with the assistance of Zen Zenith, who also created the music. For more episodes, visit blakebowls.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.